You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand and one of our uh, greeters will be happy to bring one by. It'll be a lot more enjoyable for you if you can go through the scriptures with us. And as I had said, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time, actually, uh, I think just under two years, maybe. And coming to the end of Matthew, we have finished the crucifixion of Jesus, which we spent three full weeks on, looking at the pain, the suffering, not only physically, but spiritually, what was going on for Jesus. The fact that he became the propitiation or the sacrifice for our sins, the sin of the world was placed upon him and he bore God's wrath that was reserved for us because of our sin. The wrath that was owed to us was satisfied on the person of Jesus Christ. And in that process, we see the chaos of what's happening. The Savior of the world, the Messiah, who had been promised to come for thousands of years, had finally arrived, and God's own people, the Jews crucify Jesus and in all of that chaos we saw last week as Pastor Dave unpacked the sovereignty of God that scripture after scripture and prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled and God didn't use a single miracle to bring it about instead he simply used natural means revealing the incredible sovereignty that God has, even in the suffering, even in the mess and the chaos of our lives. And we saw that at the end of Jesus' crucifixion, when he's dead, a rich man and also a religious leader in the Jewish Sanhedrin asks Pilate for his body. And Pilate says, sure, you can take it. They take Jesus' body down on the day before the Sabbath. And Joseph of Arimathea, along with one of the Pharisees known as Nicodemus, they go and bury Jesus in Joseph's brand new tomb. And there they roll the stone in front of the tomb on the day before the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath day for the Jews was on Saturday. Jesus was buried late afternoon on Friday. And we pick up where we left off, that there were two women who had come to see where the body of Jesus had been lain. Uh, We know that this was Mary Magdalene, and then it mentions another Mary. There were several Marys, so we're not sure who this Mary was, but certainly Mary Magdalene. And they're the only two out of the entire discipleship group who are bold enough to come in order to see where Jesus has been lain. And they go back to their home. And imagine this. Those two Marys, the disciples, much of Israel, those who had been healed by Jesus, those who were in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, what a weight that must have come over them as they headed into the Sabbath day. Many of them believing that Jesus was the Messiah, and now the Messiah has been crucified and killed, and their hope is crushed. And we see in verse 62 of Matthew chapter 27 that on the Sabbath day, 
says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, so this is the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way and make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this section, but it is important to note a few things. Notice how the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, which was notorious for following Jewish law to such a T that these individuals literally tithed or gave of their dill, their mint, their cumin. They took herbs from their garden and made sure to give 10% to the church. That's how meticulous they were. And what are they doing with their Sabbath day? They're going to visit a pagan governor in order to ask him for a favor, breaking all kinds of laws on the Sabbath, form over function, accomplishing their agenda over even their own faith that they had so vehemently told people to follow. And it's a good reminder for us of do we ever jeopardize the integrity of our walk with Jesus in order to accomplish things that we want to see accomplished. And if God's will is not aligned with what we're called to do according to the scriptures, beware. May we walk with Christ even when it doesn't benefit us. May we follow Jesus even when it doesn't accomplish our business goals. May we be faithful and follow him even when it causes us pain and sorrow. And we see these Pharisees, these religious leaders go to Pilate. And they say to Pilate, Sir, they give Pilate this nice title, some respect. What have they just done to the king of creation? They've murdered him and crucified him. And yet they have the arrogance to give a respectful title to Pilate. And here's something interesting in verse 63. It says, Sir, while this deceiver was still alive, shows you what they thought of Jesus, he said he would what? He would rise from the dead on the third day. Now let's just think about the picture right now of what's happening. Where are the disciples? They're hiding. They're literally in a room, holed up with the door bolted, terrified for their lives. They're fearful of the Jewish Sanhedrin. They're fearful of the Roman guard. They want no part in what's going on out of fear, which we see because they abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're not anywhere near the cross while he's being crucified. And now at this point, we learn later after the Sabbath day, they're all in a room together huddled for fear of the Jewish authorities. They don't remember that Jesus had told them that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And we'll see a little bit later on this in the story this morning. Jesus told his disciples at least three times that he would 
die in Jerusalem, that he would be buried, and that he would rise again on the third day. And it's interesting the way that Matthew records this. Who does remember what he said? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they go, hey, we knew his message. We knew who he claimed to be. He said he was going to get up on the third day. Now, we get to verse 64 and notice what they ask of Pilate. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. Now, a couple of things about this. The religious leaders are asking Pilate, hey, you got to seal the tomb because the disciples might come and take the body. The disciples don't even want to get Kentucky Fried Chicken and bring it back to the room right now. They're terrified to even go outside. They have no boldness. They are certainly not thinking about a resurrected Jesus. To them, the crucifixion and the burial ended all hope. They had placed their hope that he was the Messiah, and through his death, they're like, I guess we were wrong. Now what about us? We're marked men. There was absolutely no evidence that the apostles wanted to come and steal the body of Jesus. Therefore, what is it that the religious leaders are really afraid of? They're really afraid of Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And here's how we know. They witnessed miracles. They watched him heal a man who could not walk, restored a man who had a withered hand. Some of them were present when he called, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave after four days. They watched Jesus establish spiritual authority by casting out demons. They heard about him calming the seas. They were witnesses to the mighty power of God that was working in and through Jesus Christ. And they are literally terrified that what he said is going to come true. That's why they asked for Pilate to seal the tomb. It had nothing to do with the fear of the disciples stealing the body. And so Pilate says, hey, you have a guard, which means you have my Roman soldiers. Um, the Sanhedrin worked hand in hand with Pilate to keep order in Jerusalem. It benefited the Jewish leaders, specifically the Sadducees, um, who held the majority of the seats in the Jewish high council. They were kind of the political elite ruling class. And Pilate says, hey, you can have my soldiers. Go secure the tomb the best that you know how. Do you think the religious leaders took the sealing of the tomb very seriously? You bet they did. At minimum, four guards. At minimum, probably more, but at minimum, four Roman guards. Which means shields, swords, spears, the whole nine. And what they would do is they would tie ropes around the stone and seal the stone with wax that had Pilate's seal stamped into the wax, which represented his authority. That if anybody broke the seal without his permission... There would be severe consequences. The religious leaders took the sealing of this stone very seriously. And here is what we know. If Jesus is in the tomb, all hope of our eternal life is crushed. If Jesus is in the tomb, all hope of our eternal life is crushed. As a matter of fact, Christianity never even gets started. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. 
but without the resurrection, we are hopeless. This is a bit of a long passage, but it's worth it. I want you to read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and there are some people in Corinth going, okay, hold on a second. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that we're supposed to believe that this Jesus guy got, got up from the dead, right, Paul? That's, that's what you're telling us. And you're telling us that that's what's going to happen to us someday. And here's Paul's response. But tell me this, read with me. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. Stop there for just a second. What's useless? Our faith and my preaching is absolutely useless if Christ has not gotten up from the dead. Let's keep reading together. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. Is the resurrection an essential part to our faith? Yes, there actually is no Christian faith unless Jesus got up from the grave. This last part. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Do you see the seriousness of not having the resurrection? We're still what? Guilty of our sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. The Pharisees knew that if they could keep Jesus' body in the tomb, this whole movement of the way of following Jesus, of saying that he was the Messiah, it would be ended then and there. Uh, yesterday, I had the opportunity to speak to a lady um, who's on hospice and only has a couple of days to live. And we were having conversation and she goes, hey, Pastor JC, I, I mean no offense, but I just don't believe there's anything after this life. I just don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins, but I mean, the resurrection of the dead, I just, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't see it. And it reminded me of how important it is that when we share the good news of Jesus in our own walk with Christ, do we understand the importance of the resurrection, not just as an intellectual feather in our hat, but why it matters to us. Because think of the circumstances that befall all of those who are following Jesus. They're literally sitting in a dark room, just going, but, but I thought because, I mean, he was the fulfillment of this scripture. And I mean, you, you saw the miracle that he did, right? And I, I just, I, I can't believe this has happened. They were genuinely discouraged, depressed, anxious, fearful, and for good reason. 
the man that they had followed, that they had dedicated their lives to, that remember, those fishermen cast their nets aside and followed him to become fisher of men. They gave up their livelihood. He was dead. So what do we say to someone like this woman that I spoke to who is on hospice? What do we say to people who are skeptical? And maybe some of you are skeptical. The resurrection story helps us to better understand why the resurrection isn't just a doctrinal piece or something theological for us to know in our brains but not experience in our life. The resurrection of Jesus is meant to restore us to new life now in our difficult circumstances, in the craziness of our society, on Halloween when death is celebrated and glorified, all of these things, it's meant for us now. And the way that God does that is not through just some doctrinal statement. It's through the power of his love in which he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And John 3.16 is only true to us if what? If Jesus raised up from the dead. If he didn't, God's love is incomplete. It doesn't hold ultimate power. It has not conquered sin and death and the grave and Satan. The resurrection is necessary for all of those things to be accomplished. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 28. The resurrection story. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. Just in verse 1, we see a lot to unpack in regards to when this is occurring. It says, now after the Sabbath. So what day is it at this point for the Jews? It's Sunday, right? It's Sunday. The Sabbath day was on a Saturday, and now it's Sunday morning. And what time of morning does Matthew record that this is happening? At the crack of dawn. And here's what I love. When we go back to Genesis, when we go back to the creation account, in both Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God creates the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. That rest or that day of rest would have been on a Saturday, the Sabbath. And we see that Jesus is buried on a Friday late afternoon. He rests on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And what happens on Sunday morning? He's up and ready to start his week. Maybe underestimating it a little bit. But here's the beauty of how it relates to the Genesis account. On day one, the first day, what does God create? He creates light. He simply speaks and says, let there be light. And there was light. And on the first day, he separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and the darkness night. And the very light of the world was resurrected on that first day in parallel to the Genesis account. Elsewhere in scripture, in Exodus chapter 14, Israel has been enslaved 
by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, for over 400 years. And God sends his deliverer, Moses, this archetype of Jesus. And Moses is leading the people through the Red Sea. And as they come across the Red Sea and the last people are getting to the other side, it says, as the dawn was breaking, God brings the waters of the Red Sea over the Egyptians as they pursue them. And he brings an end to their bondage and slavery by rescuing them from death at dawn. There are similarities written here, same in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the light of God, right? Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now here's what I love about this story. Just historically speaking, within this time period, um, if we're thinking about women within a Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago, how much credibility did they have? zero, right? They couldn't even be witnesses or a testimony in a court of law. Even if they saw something firsthand, they would not be considered reliable testimony. And yet here it is in the Gospels that if this was man-made, if this was a fiction writing or some kind of legend to try to convince people of something that wasn't true, most certainly in that time period you would not use women to corroborate your story. And yet, there are two faithful ladies who are not afraid to show up the moment the Sabbath is over. What tremendous faith. What tremendous boldness of these two women. We know that one of them was Mary Magdalene. Um, if you know about Mary Magdalene, Jesus had casted seven demons out of her, and she became a follower of him, and not only a follower, but someone who financially ministered and supported Jesus in his public ministry. There's also another Mary mentioned. Um, there's like five Marys in this whole section, so we're not sure who the other Mary is. But make no mistake that the gospel writers are all in unison that there were women at the tomb. Not men. They were hiding. It was women at the tomb. Right? I love how all the women are laughing and the guys are like, yeah, we'll get you later. <laughs> Paul! <laughs> I want to ask you a question. It's great that they show up early. It's clear that they want to get there as quickly as possible once the Sabbath is over. But what are they expecting to find? A dead Jesus, right? They're not going with hopes of the resurrection. They're not thinking in their mind, well, maybe he's alive. They're literally a morning duo of ladies who are like, I can't believe this has happened. We thought he was the Messiah. He was our friend. He was so loving. He was the representation of God. We just, even if we can just be with his body, that will somehow provide some semblance of comfort. They were completely distraught, heartbroken. They show up expecting a dead Jesus. It's clear that they probably didn't think about how the tomb would be opened. How they would actually perhaps bring spices and oils and anoint the body of Jesus. That hadn't been thought through because all they cared about was being as close to him as they could. And they were the ones who saw where he was buried. 
And in verse 2, it tells us that, Behold, there was a great earthquake. Um, Judea had been shaking a lot the last couple of days within this time period. We know that the earth literally trembled and shook. The rocks were split apart when Jesus died on the cross. This representation that even the rocks will cry out, even the earth will proclaim and mourn at both his death and also his conquering of sin and death. And here, once again, we see the earth trembles in response to something that has happened. And what has happened that we know from this story? (coughs) Jesus has been resurrected, and the earth itself is rejoicing, is trembling at what's happened. And it says that an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I can try to put myself in the Mary's shoes or sandals, depending on what they were wearing, right? You show up on a dark morning to hopefully minister to the body of Jesus some oils or some perfume. And all of a sudden, this angel shows up, chucks the stone aside and sits on top of it. Where's your mental state right about now? It's got to be going wild, right? I think sometimes we read the scriptures and we're like, yes, I know the resurrection story. The Marys came. They saw the angel. Hey, angel, how you doing? It's great to be here. No way! No way! It would have totally freaked them out, right? They would have been terrified. Confused. Wondering what is happening. And verse 3 tells us his countenance, his face, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. Uh, This is consistent throughout Old Testament and New Testament in regards to the descriptions of God's angelic beings that he sends. It's even reflective of what we see in Exodus when Moses goes up onto the mountain on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He spends 40 days and 40 nights with God and he comes down looking like what? Like a glow stick. He's so bright from the presence and the glory of God that he literally has to put a veil over his face so that his own people can look at him. Imagine an angel who had been in the presence and glory of God, what his appearance must have been like. Like lightning. He rolls back the stone. And then we get some interesting context about what happens at the tomb. Because remember, who else is at the tomb besides these two ladies? There's at least four guards, maybe more. And it says that, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. How many of you have ever seen those fainting goats on TikTok or YouTube? (laughs) If you haven't, look it up another time, not right now, another time. But these fainting goats, they literally, I don't, they get frightened and they just lock up and then they tip over. And it doesn't matter if they're on top of a table or a rock or somebody's back for yoga. Like it doesn't matter. They just fall off. And notice these are Roman guards. These are men who are used to battle. These are seasoned individuals who really aren't afraid of much because they rule the earth under Caesar's authority. There's no fight, there's no struggle, there's no opposition. They simply see this angel and are so scared that they pass out. Roman guard taken care of, stone has been rolled away, and the Marys are left there going. 
Are we seeing this? Is this really happening? Can you imagine? And verse 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, Don't be afraid. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Um, I love this about... Matthew's account. The angel doesn't say squat to the guards. He talks directly to these ladies who in their faithfulness have shown up. This is so good to know that God's character is that, listen, we all mess up really bad. How many of you have ever have gone to work and just put in a really poor performance and went, I can't believe I didn't get fired? Anybody? Okay, like three of us. The rest of you are amazing. Keep up the good work. You guys are awesome. What I love is these women didn't show up with a mindset for the resurrection. They weren't like, oh, we remember those three times that Jesus taught us that he was going to be raised from the dead. That's why we're here. We can't wait. They show up and they're not even in the right mind frame. And yet God still meets them. Listen, sometimes as believers, and we could relate this to coming on a Sunday morning or going to a men's or a women's ministry or being there for a friend. But sometimes it just takes all the energy that we have just to show up. And what does God want to do with that? Oh, he's going to show up too. Be encouraged to be in fellowship, to be seeking and walking in obedience with Jesus. We may not feel like we know what we're doing all the time or we may not be doing the best. But that's why Jesus was sent, because we don't have to. It's the beauty of what he's done. And notice what the angel says. The first thing he says is, do not be afraid. And it's kind of a humorous statement in some ways of, do you think they're afraid? Yeah, of of course. Just his appearance is terrifying. But the angel's reassurance comes from the familiarity of his words. Where have you heard these words before? Do not be afraid all over the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, whether it be Joshua, whether it be Isaiah, whether it be King David, the words fear not or do not be afraid is spoken over 100 times in scripture. This would have been familiar language. And it's not saying don't be afraid of the presence of this angel, which is mighty and I'm sure very intimidating. It was a deeper do not be afraid for you've come to find a dead man. You've come expecting someone who's in the grave. You don't have to be afraid. And the angel says, for I know. The only way that angel could know is through God. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. No different than we would be showing up to if we had the boldness to go. We would be showing up expecting a dead and crucified and buried Jesus. That's what the Marys were expecting. And here's what I love, that Luke's gospel helps us get a deeper understanding and records something that this angel said. Luke 24, verse 5, the angel says to these Marys, he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And here's what the angel is doing. This is good shepherding. This is good leadership. 
these two ladies show up to see a dead person and the angel simply reframes the perspective. Why are you here for a dead person? How about you come here for a living person? Well, my work sucks, and my boss is this, and my day is like this, and I've got so much of this, and my friends are like this, and my family is annoying. Well, you mean that God is providing all this opportunity for your character to be built? <laughs> yeah, but you don't understand. The United States government and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, don't get me started, and that guy knew some, and... So you mean there's an opportunity for your faith to grow even when you're stressed out and you don't have control on your future? Do you see what the angel does here? Reframes. You came looking for a dead man. I encourage you, you should be looking for someone who is very much alive. This is what God does literally in our life. Is we see things that are dead. We see things, oh God, it's, we can't, you can't possibly do a work in this relationship. You can't possibly help me out in this area of, of my son's life or my daughter's life. You can't. And God goes, how about we reframe that? You're being given a lot of opportunity to grow your faith and trusting that I can do things that you can't, including a resurrected Savior. See, so often the world will label us with different things. Oh, you're divorced. Oh, you're a cancer patient or you're a cancer survivor or you're a veteran. Oh, you're rich. Oh, you're poor. Oh, you're a former athlete. Or as my kids like to say, dad used to have hair. <laughs> we get these labels. And here's the reality. They're part of our story. Those things are part of our story. To where if we told someone about our life, that would be part of our story. The crucifixion is essential. It's part of the gospel message. It cannot be detached from the person of Jesus Christ. But do we worship a crucified Savior or a resurrected Savior? The resurrection is the culmination. It's the finality. It's the finished work that God had always planned to do. And we see that, yes, something may be part of our life story, but it doesn't define our identity. That's not who we are. Our identity is found in life, in the resurrected work that Jesus has done for us. And in verse 6, the angel says, he is not here, meaning literally, he's not in the tomb where you expected to find him. For he is risen as he said. As he said. Um, three times Jesus told his disciples, prepared his disciples. Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 17, 22, and 23, and Matthew 20, 18 through 19, all three of those times, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders, crucified, and then I'll rise again on the third day. The angel is simply affirming what Jesus had already said was going to happen. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said that he would. And then the angel does something interesting. The angel says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. 
He's inviting the Marys to investigate what? The empty tomb. Now, whether you're a Christian, whether you're skeptical, whether you're here because a friend dragged you, which is better than drugging you, um, it's good for us to really process and think about this. I mean, think about what the story sounds like. Okay, so your entire religion, as the world would call it, hinges on if this guy, Jesus, got up from the dead. Like, that's the entirety of your faith. If that didn't happen, it's, it's all nothing. We should be able to know how to talk about the resurrection, right? We should be able to look at the scriptures. We should be able to look at historical evidence. We should be able to use common sense and logic, which is wasted in our society, to be able to understand did Jesus truly rise up from the dead? And the first essential piece of evidence of the resurrection is what the angel invites Mary and Mary to come look at. It is the empty tomb. It is the empty tomb. Now let's think about this for just a moment. Practically speaking, you had the religious sect of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They wanted to do everything to keep the name of Jesus from spreading, which continues on into the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts written by Luke, all they would have had to do to dispel Christianity is what? Who said that? David? Show the body of Jesus. That would have taken care of the entire problem, right? What can't they do? They can't produce the body. Therefore, well, maybe the body got stolen by Jesus' disciples, but we kind of already covered that. Where are the disciples? They send two ladies. They're like, hey, if you guys could go, it'd be great. We're going to hold the fort down here. How many of you have ever heard that from your husband? I'll hold the fort down with the kids. I'll see you later. Not here at the mission church, just outside the walls, people. empty tomb is literally evidence of, listen, all that had to be done. And it would have solved the Jews a lot of problems. It would have solved the Romans a lot of problems. If they just produced the body of Jesus, the whole thing would be squashed. And neither of them can do it. When we consider what happens to great people or influential people in our world, um, take a look at some of these pictures. This first one is of David's tomb, King David. Um, you can actually go visit his tomb, where he's buried, where his actual bones are in a grave. You can go visit David. It's kind of a nice building. Um, the second one, Muhammad's tomb. Literally... Millions, if not tens of millions of pilgrims go to visit the tomb where Muhammad is buried. The last one is Buddha's tomb. Um, this is a cast of Buddha where they think his bones might be buried. There's a couple of others, but this is one of them. In other words, when an influential leader dies in this world, people take their burial place and do what with it? They enshrine it. If you go to the Vatican, if you go to a lot of the land held by the Catholic Church, there are some spectacular, and what I mean by that is architecturally, spectacular tombs for some of the apostles or some of what they deem as saints. But you go to Israel and you take a tour and you go to the garden 
And the tour guide's going to tell you this. We're not really sure if this is the tomb of Jesus or not. And you're like, the most influential person who ever walked the earth. And you're not sure if this is his tomb or not. <laughs> Why is that? Because he is risen. Now, we, we know that as Christians, but let's think about this logically in the first and second century. Had Jesus been dead and buried and that's where his tomb was, maybe people would have enshrined that place and it could have grown to be a legend later. But it's just not the case. Because in the first and second century, what do people wholeheartedly believe happened? That he resurrected from the dead. And the Jews can't produce a body. And the Romans can't produce a body. And we're running out of explanations except for the resurrection. That's one piece of essential evidence for the empty tomb. The second is eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts. Um, in Judaism, which by the way was the dominant religion, not only in the Middle East but in the world at this time, more people followed the God of Israel than any other religion in the world during that first century. Even in Judaism, on account of two witnesses, you could do what to a person? Someone's like, stone them. I've read this part. <laughs> Looking for one more person. <laughs> Sorry, that was maybe too far. too far. You could. You could literally put somebody to death on the count of two witnesses according to Jewish law. I know. <laughs> and in this case, I'm not going to read it. I had it on the screens, but for time's sake, we're not going to go through it. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's talking about the very thing that was on the screens, the last one about the resurrection of the dead. And essentially, here's what Paul says. Listen, Jesus showed up to all 12 disciples. He also showed up to a few others and then 500. And by the way, you can go talk to the majority of that 500 because they're still alive today. So that when Paul sent that letter to the church in Corinth, he was like, listen, you can go talk to Betsy. You can go talk to Bob. You can go talk to Irene. They all know that Jesus rose from the dead because they saw them. Oh, and by the way, Paul finishes that section by saying, and then I also saw the resurrected Jesus. Now consider this for evidence in regards to the eyewitness accounts. The Apostle Paul was such a zealous Pharisee, so obsessed with following the law, that he made it his life's goal to literally persecute people who were calling Jesus the Messiah and following what was known at that time as the way or Christianity. And he had so much authority and he had so much opportunity that he was killing people and throwing them into prison. What would cause the Apostle Paul to stop the success that he was having and do an about-face 180 and become the greatest preacher of the gospel the world has ever seen, even unto the point of death? And that's just a small piece of his life. The shipwrecks, the beatings, the going naked, the being hungry, the persecution, the mockings. What would cause a man to go from having all of this authority in persecuting Christians to becoming one who dies for the faith. Nothing more than seeing and experiencing the resurrected Jesus himself. 
based on eyewitness accounts for over 500 people in that time period, they saw Jesus. Now this is the third one. It's probably not final on the list, but the rise and growth of the Christian faith. The rise and growth of the Christian faith. Now think about this. It's the first century. Rome dominates the world. They hold sway over everything that happens in the Middle East. They have their thumb on every piece of government. They own the Jews in regards to how they militarily dominate them and can tell them what to do. And here's what we see. Christianity doesn't have a military conquest. Christianity doesn't have money and prestige and power in government. Here's how it begins. Jesus calls a couple of fishermen and says, hey, why don't you come follow me? And for three years, he does miracles. And he teaches the heart of God's word from the Old Testament. And he loves people. He puts hands on people in which no one else wanted to touch. He embraces them. He calls them by name. And this whole time, momentum is building. And it's not building because bank accounts are getting bigger. It's not building because the house or the car that you drive is getting better. It's building because people are feeling God's love for the first time, apart from the rules and regulations that have been so rigid and strict on people that it's simply become a religion instead of a relationship. And here's how Christianity happens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly goes to the cross to bear our sins. And he's raised up from the dead on the third day. And it begins to produce a transforming work from the very men he started with going outwards into the community. Think about the disciples, right? They're literally huddled together in hiding when Jesus first appears to them, which we'll get to at the very end of Matthew. They're all holed up in a room. And what takes those men from being fearful and afraid to men like this? Here is the account of the 12 apostles. Matthias, who was the last one chosen after Judas, had betrayed Jesus, was stoned and then beheaded. Jude was shot through with arrows by an executioner. Matthew, Paul, and James were all beheaded. Mark was dragged to death through the streets of Alexandria for preaching the gospel. Philip and Luke were hung. Peter and Andrew were crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. James the Lesser, or Little James, was thrown from a building, didn't die, so they clubbed him to death. Bartholomew was whipped and beaten. Thomas, doubting Thomas, was run through with a spear because of his faith. And the only one who survived to old age was John, who Rome tried to boil in oil, and it didn't work. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. What takes huddled, scared, frightened men who won't even go to the foot of the cross while Jesus is being crucified into men who are literally willing to accomplish the gospel until death? And here's the thing. It wasn't just them. 
wasn't just them. Think about the first and second century. What happened to Christians? They were, don't worry everyone, Andrew's really nice. And he's probably going to ask if the little one can go out for now. You think about all those Christians in that first and second century, tens of thousands of individuals. What took place in their heart for their willingness to go into the Colosseum to be eaten or to be killed in terrible ways? or to be hung on the streets and used as lanterns? What would cause tens of thousands of people to choose that kind of end? What would you say? Okay, the resurrection. Let's talk practically though, right? I know we know that, but not all of those people saw the resurrected Jesus. So how does it get to that point? Oh, who said that? Brittany? Thank you. Say it louder. You get credit. Love. Yeah. They experienced the love that came from God through his son, Jesus Christ. And here's how that played out. It wasn't just in the relationship between Jesus and those people. Certainly, they would have heard the story of the resurrection. They believe in the resurrection, and a transforming work starts to take place in their hearts. Do you remember what some of the markers were of the early church? That there was no one in need? That they met one another where they were? That they were ministering to each other in ways to meet practical and daily needs? That they would comfort one another? They would walk alongside of each other. That the love of God became tangible in their everyday lives. When Rome experienced tremendous waves of sickness, who stepped in to help? It was the Christians. What compelled them to be willing to not have to put on a mask and a hazmat suit, but actually to minister to people when they were sick? It was the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel. And it caught fire like crazy because it was real. There are some people in my own life where sure, I'd take a bullet for them, whatever that situation would look like. But when, it, when I consider who they are, it would be my joy to serve and to follow and to love and to encourage all the way to the end because of how they've loved me. Because of what I've experienced from them. And it was the experience of those Christians who were being martyred by the thousands in those first couple of centuries that allowed them to joyfully go to their deaths and somehow, despite massive persecution, the rise and growth of the Christian faith took over the entire known world. And even so, still today. When we consider the evidence, the empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts, the rise and growth of the Christian faith rooted in God's love, there's only one explanation that makes sense. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we return to our text, Matthew chapter 7, the angels have shown Mary's, the Marys, hey, the tomb is empty. He's not here. Now, here's what's amazing. Have the Marys seen the resurrected Jesus yet? No. no. But 
there hope where there wasn't hope before? You bet there is. And now the angel gives them some instructions because I can only imagine, right? Angels show up, guards fall down practically dead. The angel's like, hey, he's not even here. By the way, you got a wrong thought process. He's alive. Come see the empty tomb. Their heads must be spinning and exploding, right? Like, what, what, what do we do? And the angel's like, don't worry. I've got good instructions for you. Verse 7. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. What is the instructions for the Marys? Go tell the disciples. Go tell them what? Jesus is risen from the dead. Is this message just for the Marys? No way. It's for all of us, right? All of us. Now go and tell others. I can only imagine how fast those ladies must have started running. And what I love is their obedience. There's... In their mind frame, there's no sense in the text that tells us like, well, they weren't really sure, like they are booking it. They're going to tell the disciples, hey, Jesus isn't in the tomb. He's up. He's going to meet us in Galilee. And here's what I love. The direction from the angel is so important to us. Because if we just sit at the tomb and go, huh, that's great. Like, I know Jesus is risen from the dead. And you sit there, you miss the joy of watching other people receive what? The good news that Jesus is risen. Imagine being the first two people, in this case, two women, who got to go share the complete gospel. That's amazing! They were the first two. And the best part is it's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Like, we don't even know which Mary that is. But she got to go share the gospel. And they're on their way. And look what happens in verse 8. So they went out quickly. That's probably an understatement. They went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples word. How do you have fear and great joy at the same time? How many of you have ever been to Six Flags? How many of you have ever lined up for a kickoff right at the beginning of a game? How many of you have ever wondered how long the Sunday sermon's going to go? Fear and great joy. Uh, to be clear, the type of fear that's being referred to is an awe. Like, no way. That's incredible. I can't believe it. With fear and great joy. How do we go to other people in our life? I remember growing up, my younger years of like, yeah, I mean, I'd like to come over, but I'm a Christian, so my parents said I can't. <laughs> Not fear and great joy. More like feeling sorry for myself and what a lame life I live. Listen. The Marys have this awe, this sense of wonder, this that's, I can't believe it, but I can believe it now because the tomb is empty and they're on their way, right? Fear and great joy. And here's a couple of things before we get to the rest of the passage. 
why the resurrection matters, why go and tell others, what's important about that. First and foremost, the resurrection matters because our new and born again life is dependent on the resurrection. Our new and born again life is dependent on the resurrection. Write this down in your notes, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. I encourage you to look at that passage this week. In a nutshell, here's what it says. We have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been born again because he raised, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We cannot be born again. We cannot have new life save for the resurrection. So what is it that we should go and share with others? The resurrection. The complete story. We need to talk about repentance. We need to talk about the cross of Christ. We need to talk about the high cost that he paid on our behalf because of our sin. But do not leave out the resurrection. That's the good news part. Why else does the resurrection matter? Our justification is dependent on the resurrection. Justification is another way to say our right standing with God. Our right standing with God. Again, if you're taking notes, write down Romans 4, 24 and 25. Romans 4, 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul clearly states in this passage that for our justification, Christ was raised from the dead. And then lastly, why does this matter? Why should we go tell others? Because our eternal life in body and spirit is dependent on the resurrection. I put body and spirit because I think it's important for us to understand when Jesus rose up from the dead, what did he receive? A resurrected body. Not like Lazarus when Jesus called him out from the grave. God simply gave him life in the earthly body that he had, which was still subject to death and decay later on, and Lazarus died. When Jesus is raised up from the dead, he receives a glorified, an immortal body, one that does not wither away. Uh, yesterday, I literally went to pick up a pumpkin, and it was like seven pounds, and I was like, Neh. and I went right here, and then I got stuck, and I remembered about the death and decay that my body is going through. <laughs> Now we laugh at that, but seriously, how many of you look at yourself and go, boy, I am not the same as I used to be? Or how many of you does it cause tremendous stress to? And here's what needs to happen, is every time you look in the mirror and you notice a new wrinkle, or more gray hair, or no hair at all, or the shoulders slipping to the love handles, whatever it is, you need to look at yourself and go, I get a new one of you! So I'm good with what I got now. Because the reality is, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54, you can write that down, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54, the Apostle Paul confirms we will receive an immortal body, one that can inherit eternal life, and the current one we have cannot receive eternal life. Now it's amazing as God is already doing a work in us. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are being put to death in the flesh so that Christ can rule and reign here and now. But this actual body 
needs to be laid in the grave before we can be given our glorified bodies at the return of Jesus Christ. Our eternal life is dependent on the resurrection. Still with me? A couple more verses. Verse 9. And as they, meaning the Marys, went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Oh my goodness, here's what I love. In obedience, the women are running to do what they've been instructed to do. And without being irreverent, I think this is theologically correct. Listen, when you, when you follow God, Jesus is just going to show up and reveal himself to you. I don't know what that looks like for every individual. I do know he's done it in my life and he continues to do it in my life. But I wholeheartedly believe God doesn't play coy with people. He reveals himself so that when you knock, when you seek, you will find. He will open the door for you. And these Marys are headed on to Galilee. And I just wonder what this scene looked like. We don't get it in the text, but it's like Jesus hiding behind a tree. And was like, all right, I got to pop out now. I mean, <laughs> can't let them just go on their own. He appears to them. And look at the reverence. What is the posture of these women? It says they worshipped him and they were holding on to his feet, which means they were probably face first on the ground, clinging to his ankles. And were they afraid? No. Were they sad and sorrowful? No. What's the one word Jesus speaks to them? Rejoice full of joy. And here's why that word is so powerful. It shows how much Jesus understood the depths of these women's hearts. What did they want more than anything in their life? Oh, a resurrected Jesus. So that Jesus speaks one word, rejoice. And it ministers to the core of who they are because their heart and their will is aligned with God's heart and his will. And when those two are aligned, when we seek the will of God and it becomes our greatest desire, oh, the joy that comes from those things being fulfilled. And for the Marys, it's what they wanted more than anything. It's what they had started to believe at seeing the empty tomb. And Jesus affirms it by appearing to them. Now I want to encourage you. This tremendous joy, this rejoicing, this worship and rejoicing, which is a right response to the resurrected Jesus, right? Worship and rejoicing is a right response to the resurrected Jesus. It's not just for the Marys. Who's it for? It's for us. Why do we come in and do four songs on a Sunday morning? We love Jesus. Thank you, Jasmine. To rejoice and to worship. Because it's not just for these two women. It's meant to be for us. Because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living through his resurrected son, Jesus Christ. We come to worship a resurrected Savior. If you looked at the lyrics of all four of our songs this morning, what are they all about? The resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not just for the Marys. It's for us as well. And imagine these women getting to cling to the feet of their Savior. 
And yet Jesus doesn't leave them there for long, right? He doesn't tell them, hey, no, don't worship me. He is the king and Messiah. He lets them worship him. And then he gives them the same direction that the angel did. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. They didn't have to convert the disciples. What was their calling? To go and what? Tell them that Jesus was alive. Church family, please hear this. You're not responsible for the souls of other men and women. That burden has not been placed on your shoulders. The burden that has been placed on your shoulders, according to Matthew 28 at the very end, is go and make what? Make disciples. And the way you make disciples is by telling them of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just in words, but by the way you live it out, by the way you act in your relationship, by the way you encourage, by the way you build up, by the way you challenge, by the way you rebuke, by the way you parent, by the way that you live with your spouse. Go. Go and tell the disciples they're going to see me. That's a message worth repeating. That's a message filled with rejoicing. It's the hope of life for a dying world that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. And there is life abundant here now through that perfect promise. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.